You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and how to create a vibrant and thriving home staging business. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 147. Hey guys, as you know, 17 Hats was our main sponsor at SagerCon 2021. We recommend 17 Hats because it was a critical part of our home staging business and free us up from lots of paperwork, admin, and chasing clients with emails so that we can focus on what we love to do, which is staging. If you're like us, you probably didn't go into the business for the paperwork. You know, all those invoices, emails, reminders, to-dos, and just the incessant chasing after client for paperwork. So that's where 17 Hats comes in for us. It's like you cloned yourself. Their all-in-one platform automates your staging business. 17 Hats handles the tedious stuff like payment reminders, capturing leads, proposal, invoicing, and even scheduling. We actually create a resource guide for you on our site. Just go to stagerunner.com slash 17 hats and find out more about how we use 17 hats in our home staging business. If you're a current 17 hats user, we would love to hear about your story too. You can submit your 17 hats story on our site at stagerunner.com slash 17 hats. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. So on today's show, I have Amy, who is the founder of Bureau of Tactical Imagination. It's another fantastic name. So through a training program and the community called the Visionary Syndicate, she helps small business owners to create imaginative, ethical, and unique brands that grow their businesses and contribute to culture in a way that they can be proud of. So the reason why I invited Amy on the show was because one of her students is on the cusp of starting her home staging business, and she felt a bit stuck about naming her business. And basically to the point where she feels a little bit paralyzed almost that she cannot start her business because she doesn't have the right or the perfect name to go with it. So I thought having a branding expert like Amy would be perfect. I think maybe some of you are going through similar things or you're thinking about starting your business and you're not sure how to name it. We're going to talk a little bit about that on the show today. And also we talk about branding, but also specifically marketing our businesses today in today's culture. And also a little bit about working as a multi-passionate entrepreneur. And also just a quick reminder, we got an in-person retreat coming up for the last weekend of February in 2020 in Portland, Oregon. And we're also planning another one possibly on the East Coast in April. So we got the Portland house set up already or the logistics set up already. And the retreat sign up is now live on our website. So if you just go to stagemore.com, you will see it on the front page. We're also going to link this to your show notes. So if you cannot find it, you can also DM me on Instagram. If you're interested in signing up, I recommend you do that soon because I think it's going to fill up really fast. People have been asking me when it's going to go live because I've been talking about it on and off on Instagram. If there's going to be a high demand for the retreat, we might open a second date in March on the West Coast as well. And we also got some great Black Friday deals coming up. I think this year everyone's doing early Black Friday, which I think is smart. So you can kind of figure out where you want to invest your money in. We've got a new Staging Business Foundation course for total beginners, and it's called the Five Figure Floor Plan. So this course is on pre-sale right now. And actually, our certificate program students get the first look on them, and they have been really enjoying it so far. And the course itself 
also includes a basic home staging business law course and a contract course for home stagers that we collaborate with an attorney. So I think it's a really robust course for those of you who are thinking about starting your home staging business because it really looks at the staging business from many different angles. And we also talk about the breaking down of all the different workflows or what is the process like of doing a consultation and all that. So I think it's a pretty robust course and you can just go on our website to check it out since we're doing the pre-sale for it right now for the five-figure full plan course. We're also doing pre-selling spots. It's going to be limited for our certificate program. This is going to open enrollment in February, but I thought while well, since we're doing a Black Friday, why don't we kind of doing a little pre-sale for that as well. So it's like a super, super early bird. So for those of you who may know, our certification program is structured actually in five phases and the total thing takes nine months. But what we do is we do an enrollment in the fall and another one early on in the year. So the second part of the enrollment is for phase four and five. The first three phases are perfect for those of you who are total beginners. You haven't started your home staging business or you just started and you feel like you need the foundational help. But for the last two phases are really great for those of you who have been working for a while. You already have data. You have projects under your belt. You already earned your first 10 grand in your business. So you know what home staging business is like. So for phase four and five, we're really going to focus on building out your home staging business systems and workflow, basically all the big foundational pieces you need to really sustain your business and grow in a very sustainable way. And what we're going to do is we're really going to actually pick it apart and then put it back together to kind of work out all the kinks. It's just like a machine or putting together Ikea furniture, right? If you get one of those dolls crooked, the rest of the bookshelf may be a little bit crooked as well. So what we're going to do is make sure every single doll in your furniture is straight on. And so you can really support the weight that you need to sustain for your home staging business. So during phase four, we are going to have guest speakers coming in to do workshop with you. Those are going to be kind of a wide variety of workshop. We have about eight and nine different workshops that is in the planning phase now. So in the phase four, you're going to be doing one per week. At least that's the plan right now. Uh, we're trying to work out all the scheduling and finalizing that with our potential speakers, but they are mostly going to be working stagers or working professionals. So for example, we're going to have a money workshop. Obviously that is going to be like a financial professional. It's not necessarily going to be a stager. In phase five, you're going to be doing one-on-one office hours with me and Kristen, who you might know or remember from this year's stager con. So she's a real estate broker at Compass Philadelphia, managing 18 real estate agents. She also owns a home staging company that has won Best of Philly. So that's really impressive. And they recently just staged M. Night Shyamalan's childhood home. So they have grown their business to be quite big in merely three years. Kristen is an amazing, not only agent, but also stager as well. And she has a really great presence. She's been part of our certification program so far, and everyone really enjoyed their interaction with Kristen as well. You're going to have one-on-one office hours with both of us, in addition to just keep continually working on the build out of your systems. So we're basically be looking at everything in your home staging business, ranging from marketing, your website, social media, to your structure of your business and all that. 
In order to get a certification, you essentially will need to submit your entire home staging business. We call it a 360 degree review. We're going to be looking at everything. I think it's going to be really intense, but I think it's also going to be really great, especially for those of you who have been working for a while, but you might feel a little bit stuck. Like your business has more potential to do greater and better things, but for some reason, it's not yet a well-oiled machine yet. So in phase four or five, we're really going to look at how exactly can we do that? Can we achieve that? The other thing I think is really important to talk about, and I think it's not happening right now in the education landscape in staging business, is to how do we future-proof our home staging business? So we're going to be looking at possible different income streams and all that. And I think one of the things if 2020 has taught us is really to be prepared, right? Because obviously with pandemic, we're still dealing with it now, even at the end of 2021. It has really changed our life, the way we work, the way we live in very unexpected ways. So as a home stager, as a service-based business as well, what are some of the things can we do to really make sure that we can future-proof our business or figuring out where some additional strings of income possibly that we can cultivate to prepare one day if something like this happen again. Or for some reason, we have to cut back our service-based business, but we have something else to really push it up. So we're going to be looking at that and having a discussion about that as well in phase five. So lots of stuff going on. I'm really excited to be planning in-person retreats. Everyone loves SageCon. Everyone had a really great positive experience. But at the end of the day, people still want to have one-on-one or like more intimate setting, right? So I thought retreat would be like the perfect thing to do that. And I personally am like a retreat junkie. Before COVID, I travel a lot. I went to different type of retreats. I went on retreats where I can work on my business with a coach or, you know, retreats for like as an artist or as a photographer, that kind of thing, or even yoga retreat as well, meditation retreat. I always find them very beneficial. It's also nice to be in a place that's outside my normal comfort zone, physically and also mentally as well. So yeah, I'm really excited about all the retreats that are coming up. We'll have it planned. If you're interested, just go on our website, asktoagemore.com. All the info is there for you to get. So without further ado, let's start the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get started today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your business? Sure. So my name is Amy Walsh, and my business is the Bureau of Tactical Imagination. And with that work, I train small business owners to build effective and original and powerful brands. And in doing so, they also build some of the traits of creative directors as part of running the business. So cool. So how did you get in this line of work? Well, I have a long and meandering history as a creative person, like I imagine many in your audience do. I'm a visual artist. And so I started off doing painting and sculpture and a lot of gig work, a lot of odd jobs through the years, including branding and design, freelance work on the side. And then I taught in university art and design department for about 13 years. And because it's adjunct work in the United States, it was very, very low pay. So I was still doing a lot of other kinds of jobs as well. And when I had my son, 
now 12 years ago, I hit kind of a burnout point where it just became impossible to do all these different kinds of things and have my creative life and have a child. And so I really burned out when he was about three or four, I burned out and got sick. You know, I had an autoimmune disease. I, I just got to this point in my life where I was like, this can't go on. I need to somehow integrate these different skills and bodies of work that I've been doing into one thing that I can have more control over. And, you know, some people laugh at me, and this might be true for some of your folks too, that one would choose entrepreneurship as the way to create sustainability. <laughs> but for me, it really was. I knew I couldn't go into a full-time job at a company or something with the young child at home and with my health issues. So I started my business. And I actually started doing various kinds of coaching and consulting work for people. And it eventually grew to get the focus that it has now. That's amazing. I think the entrepreneurship lifestyle, it is a bit challenging, right? It's like that TikTok video that, sure, I'm my own boss, but I also work 24-7. It's like a never-ending thing. Yeah, it can definitely feel that way. I have to say, I've started to really achieve balance now. I'm about six years into my business now, and I feel like I've got my nights and I've got my weekends now for the most part. But yeah, I think that it's a real trade-off between the flexibility and the opportunity to potentially make more money than you would make in another job, the flexibility to live your life in some ways more on your own terms, and the trade-off being there can be a period of years where you're working harder than you might have worked in another situation with more pressure. So yeah. it's a whole big balancing act. <laughs> You know, I, I do think in the beginning, it's the business building phase. So naturally, you will work longer hours just to kind of establish a strong foundation for the business so then it can grow. Absolutely. I, for a while, was following the business coach and trainer, Rachel Rogers. And she often would say to people, work hard once. So in other words, put in the time and energy to build the foundation to build your offer, to build something that's really going to work, and then simplify and focus and just rely on it. It gets easier after you do those initial big outlays of labor. <laughs> yeah. I do think that is very good advice. But I think the challenging part of that is also finding that clarity in terms of mm -hmm. what works, right? Because it can take a yeah. little while to really figure out what works in your business. That's also very applicable for today's conversation when it comes to branding. I think when we're prepping for the show, we definitely talk about branding can look very different, right? In different phase of your business. It can look very different Absolutely. in the beginning, in the middle, or in, you know, when you're seven figure, that it's going to look very different in every step. So let's start from the basics. Why is branding so important? So there are a lot of ways that you can talk about branding. There's a lot of different definitions of branding, but one that I love, one of my favorites, is that at the end of the day, the place where your brand lives is really in the gut feeling of the person who's thinking about you or comes across you, right? It's an emotional thing. It's a felt thing. And it's made up of things that you can pinpoint like it's made up of your values and your actions and the way you conduct your business and as well as the look and feel of the brand all those different things but 
when you think about kind of the big brands that you know of, when you picture their logo or you think about an advertisement you've seen, you have this sort of gut reaction, however slight. You have this felt sense of what this company is and what it means and what it stands for. And that's really everything. You know, if people don't have that, and if that experience isn't positive for people when they think about or encounter your brand, it's really, really hard to sell. (laughs) That's a really key piece of it. There are other things I could say, but, you know, at the end of the day, people need to have a real sense of you that goes beyond some of the more practical things. It's almost like a little culture or an environment that you build around your work that people feel. Yeah. I think most people, when they think about branding, they really think about the physical things, right? A logo, a tagline, actually branding in a way it's a personality, almost like a lifestyle. Even Mm -hmm. if you look at bigger brands and how they market themselves, for example, Nike or Starbucks, these are very well-known brands, but there's also a very strong personality that are associated with these kind of brands. Absolutely. And it can seem kind of mysterious and it can seem kind of superficial. Like it's about the colors and the logos and they're somehow supposed to create this mystique. But those things are always built on a foundation underneath that I think all business owners, no matter how small or how large, need to look at. And one is your position in your market, your brand position, and the other is your identity. And I would add a third piece, especially for the very small business owners, is the creative process that generates the brand. I mean, this is true actually at every level. But your brand position is really how you engineer the way that you're going to stand out in your market and be really compelling to just those people that you most want to work with. So there's strategy around that. There's degree of looking around at your market and saying, what stories are being told here? What values are being shown here? What assumptions are being made about this work and its results and its meaning? What are the kinds of visual images I see? What are the trends? And really thinking, like, what's my role? What's my business's role in that whole environment? What am I going to become known for? And in the minds of my potential customers, how do they perceive me? And those are really important things to pick apart. I think those are the things that we wish were just natural. To some degree it is, but having that ability to kind of look out and have kind of an analysis of what that context is so you can be really intentional about how you're showing up there makes the difference between you standing out and being really unique and different and you just being indistinguishable from the whole range of people who are like the hacks who are flooding the market (laughs) all the way to the amazing pros, you know, you really need to do that work to differentiate yourself. So the positioning is, is a really important piece. And the identity has a lot to do with leaning into your strengths as a communicator and a creator and really getting in touch with your own personality in the work. And thinking about the personality of your business, really, in that space. So position and identity are very connected. When you feel like you really understand that stuff, then you can create not just 
colors and logos and things that help continue that identity. But you can also realize like, oh, I'm basically putting art and words out there into the culture. I can be really creative about this. And there might be other moves that I can make that are a lot more powerful than those simple design issues to stand out in my field and make it so the people that I want to work with really can see me like loud and clear. I'm assuming that some of the folks in your market can be a little overwhelmed by all the people who are out there trying to get noticed all at the same time. Yeah, I do think real estate market in general is fairly competitive. So you are constantly competing with one another. And that's why I also think that a lot of times people feel like they get stuck, especially in the beginning phase. So the main genesis of this episode was because one of the students in our program asked about how should she name her new business, like her new home team mm. business. She would feel really yeah. stuck because she wanted to find the perfect name for it. And mm-hmm. until she find it, she feel like I can't buy a domain. I can't have a website. In the meanwhile, I have potential client already like, when is your website going to be up so I can show my seller to book you? Yeah. Like that. So it's actually... Yeah deterring her from moving forward in her home staging business. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how do we come up with a name for our business? Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts about this. One just has to do with the basic brainstorming process. When a decision feels this important and feels this fraught, it can be difficult to just feel really free and just brainstorm really openly and freely, right? So I usually suspect that the people around me who are trying to come up with names are giving up too quickly. So in the brainstorming process, I would advise this person to go ahead and keep brainstorming, even if all the ideas are terrible, even if it feels like it's going nowhere. It's often just on the other side of that barrier that you find something surprising that's going to work. But I think on a deeper level, there are some important questions to ask about what you want going into the future with a name. If you have a vision for your business to grow and to take on more people, ultimately, do you want your business to be identified with you? Or are you eventually going to maybe sell this business or make yourself obsolete in the business and leave it? You know, do you want it to be something not associated with you? So, you know, is your name a part of it? Is it not? So there are this sort of like big structural questions behind a name that usually we're not ready to answer yet when we're just starting. And this was true for me. When I started my business, I was Amy Walsh coaching. And I didn't give myself the Bureau of Tactical Imagination until I was almost a year in. So I want to reassure this person and say, these are not the days of branding like 20, 30, 40 years ago when if you changed your name, it cost you half a million dollars and you had to reprint all your brochures and it was really expensive and all that. We live in a time where businesses are really building themselves in public and they're iterating and evolving before our eyes. And you get to do that too. So you get to start with a name that's simple, that feels relevant to where you are now. And the name doesn't have to do everything right? It can be really simple. And the exciting parts of your business can appear in other places if they need to. And gather all that information and inspiration that happens as you're working with your first clients. 
because that period of months when you're working with your first clients, you're going to start to get a much better picture of what is truly outstanding about you instead of everybody else. And that's going to help you be much more specific about a name. And you'll be more relaxed because, <laughs> you know, when you're first starting off, you're stressed out. You want to make all the right choices. And that can be a hard time to do that kind of creative work. So I would say keep it simple and keep moving. And you've got a, a little window before you have a lot of SEO on your website, before you have a lot invested. You have a window where you can change things. Your legal business name could be your name. And then you could do a doing business as your new name, you know, a few months down the line. Yeah. Also, I think most people start as a sole proprietor, right? So you can essentially yeah. just buy your name.com. Like for me, cindylink.com right. to start. And then mm -hmm. once you feel like, okay, I start seeing a name forming in my head and I can change it. It's early on enough. Client doesn't really know the difference yet. You can just be like, mm -hmm. oh, we just added a DBA. And so now this is it. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, over time you can really work on, okay, what's my vision and what are my values and what's the identity that is forming from my business and the community? You know, all those things will give you clues about your name. It is really hard to name right at the outset because it doesn't have enough context yet. So simply, you don't have enough data. You haven't worked with a lot yes. of clients. You don't know what your specialization is. It might be. You don't know mm -hmm. where you want to build the business towards. So I think having right. a little bit more data, a little bit more projects, and it makes that decision easier. Absolutely. I also think your brand evolves, right? Because I think depending mm -hmm. on the type of work you end up doing, it could be also surprising. You may started the business thinking, oh, I'm going to do this type of project. And then you actually end up a whole new different demographic, a different segment, different kinds of real estate agent. And then so then your brand personality changes. And yes. maybe the color palette changes as well. Because you maybe thought you had your heart set, I want to work with senior citizens. And then you realize mm -hmm. that actually that doesn't work in my market. I end up really enjoying staging condos for young professionals. And that's a whole yeah. other set of color palette that our potential customer responds to. Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, the culture really supports that now because of social media, because of how available all these digital tools are to everyone, because you could shoot a whole movie on your iPhone if you wanted. The culture supports and is made of now businesses that are evolving publicly. It's no longer a bad thing to change your mind, right? And it's becoming safer now even. And a shared mentor of ours, Tara McMullen, was just talking about this recently of the What Works Network, that this is actually a moment where it's getting safer for a lot of people to make big changes in their business because big changes are happening all around us in the culture. And everyone's reevaluating what they're doing. And you can make pivots. And actually, those can be really exciting for your audience. Those can be really exciting in your market to have people really shaking up what it means to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know, the landscape really has changed compared to when I first started staging in 2006. You know, that's a long time ago. And even the way we approach staging education... I think for me, at least, my approach has changed. It's like, I really do think it's really important to look at what's happening in the culture right now and how do we stay relevant to our consumer? Because our consumer is getting yeah. diverse. 
They're getting more global as well. The younger generations, genders mm. are fluid to them and their buying yeah. habits are different. We're starting to see millennials, you know, friends buying houses together. And so the way we stage and present and tell that story visually needs to really work with the current culture as well. Especially if we are working in those specific demographics that is not as yeah. traditional as it used to be. That's really fascinating. I love hearing about that. I think there's a lot of visual tropes. I think the traditional staging teachers used to uphold. And then some of them now don't age that well. So like, for example, Mm -hmm. when I was taking my staging training back in the 2006, this trainer was like, yeah, sometimes when you work with people from another culture, they might have an altar in their home for their ancestor. Mm -hmm. When it comes Mm -hmm. to staging and selling, you know, it's really kind of, it could be distracting, which is true. But the solution the trainer had was to shove it in the closet. That does not age very well now, right? Because it's (laughs) disrespectful to other people's culture. And so now, you know, the younger generation would definitely call that out and will cancel you in a heartbeat. And so we have to be very kind of aware in terms of what are the cultural implications that we might do through our staging and also the way we tell that story, you know, visually. Yeah, and I can imagine this sort of norm in the staging industry in the past has probably been extremely heteronormative and about like two parents, a man and a woman and two kids and a dog and a picket fence kind of stuff. (laughs) I think another thing that's happening in the culture at large is that there's a lot of consciousness being raised around predatory marketing practices, like the Lululemon documentary and, you know, all the stuff that's coming out. And in particular, the kinds of marketing and the kinds of companies that prey on small business owners and entrepreneurs who are starting their businesses and people are looking to trust the businesses they work with in a different way. And like you are saying, like more critically, you know, really kind of deconstructing the way things have been done in the past. And so I think that's another reason why it's so important that your brand be flexible and be a brand that's learning and that's evolving. With my own clients, I like to talk about it like it's less of a fixed thing. I think the old way of thinking about branding is it's like you get your colors and your logo and your font and your position and your identity and you put it in a book, you know, to give to your contractors and it never, ever changes and you have to really conform to it. And actually, the bigger a company is, the more important it is to have those fixed standards because when you have 20 people speaking on behalf of your brand and making designs on behalf of your brand, it can be a yard sale, right? But when you're small and you can kind of keep your arms around your brand, it's, I think, more useful to think of it less as this fixed thing and more as this kind of language that you can be flexible with. You know, like as long as you're sticking to a core set of principles and values and a core set of ways that you kind of create your brand stuff and definitely having consistent typography is really helpful. You know, there's some things that you can do to really signal your professionalism that are really important. But beyond that, like you get to learn in public, your brand gets to get better and better all the time. You know, you don't have to drop $5,000 or 10 or $15,000 once every five years on your brand, something you can just be working on every day. 
Yeah, and I think that ethical value today is highly valued in our culture because I think consumers are getting to the point where they're sick of being sold to all the time. They understand yeah. and they start seeing the tricks that the traditional marketing scheme we're doing. You know, we're, we're looking at all these different brands being exposed. You know, like Lululemon, for example, their CEO was ousted because it turned out there was all these kind of racist and sexist and highly, you know, misogynistic conversations happen in the back room and people were angry. And so he mm. had to leave and they had to brought in like a whole new CEO. We saw the same thing with yeah. Uber where we work, you know, all these big companies are well-known brands. Like consumers mm-hmm. want to hold them accountable. I think yeah. in the small business context, it's less scary than that. Because I think because usually mm-hmm. we're a one person shop that we can make that decision very quickly. But I also yeah. think sometimes it can be scary to stand up for your value, you know, especially I think conversations around diversity, for example. There's already a lot of controversies in the industry when they change the language from master bedroom to primary bedroom, for example, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I know in your work, you teach in your program, the visionary syndicate is to help business owners to build imaginative, ethical, and also unique brands that really yeah. grow their businesses and contribute to a culture that in a way that they can be proud of. Mm-hmm. So as small business owners, how can we make that accessible? Because I think most of the time it feels very abstract and also feels right. possible because we're not like a McDonald's that has unlimited budget, right? Exactly. How can we do that exactly. and make an impact in our own community? Yeah, I love this question so much. <laughs> this question is where I live. So. For example, in in the Visionary Syndicate, I have people, some of whom really think of themselves as like social justice activists or, you know, they have a real mission in their business to make some kind of social change or political change or cultural change. But a lot of them don't. You know, they have a lot of different kinds of businesses. You know, someone's starting a small publishing company, someone's designing planners, daily planners. There's a lot of different types of folks in there. And what I say to all of them is, Think of your little business as kind of a microcosm of the world that you want to create. So you have your product or your service that you're putting out there. And now you're building a business around it, which is like a little model of how you want the world to be. So if you sell widgets (laughs) and your values, what you care about is racial equity and environmental sustainability, then you can say, okay, how am I going to build equity practices into how I hire? How am I going to think about environmental sustainability or fair labor in how I source my materials? When I sell my widgets, what kind of stories are implicit in what I'm saying to the world about widgets and why you need to buy them? And how am I inviting people to buy them? You know, what stories am I kind of telling or relying on? So it can seem so abstract, but I think it's really baked into the tiny details about how you choose to treat people and how you choose to treat yourself, how you want your work to feel. Because all these industries, every industry has in the normative sense, in the dominant sense, there's some kind of exploitation built into them because that's the system we live in. (laughs) You know, that's like how the economic system of, of this country was founded on exploitation, right? So any way that you can 
unravel that or contradict that and make sure that you're not being exploited in the business and the people that you work with and that you're selling to are not being somehow mistreated is a really powerful form of change. And it may feel small. It may feel kind of invisible, but these things really ripple out. I mean, this is how cultures change is that enough people start to change how they're behaving and what they care about and what they're willing to say they care about. So some of my people are very vocal about that stuff. And some of my people are more quiet about it. And they're doing that kind of internal work. And I think that's really valuable. You know, I think we all have a different role to play out there. Some of us are like the speakers. (laughs) And some of us are just really making a difference to the people that are closest to us. And I think branding has a really good role to play because we're putting images and words, we're putting art out there, basically, even though that word is intimidating to a lot of us. That's what we're doing with the brand. And art influences people, it affects people. Sounds and images and stories, you know, they're what our culture is made of. I always think of Ben and Jerry, I guess. They're kind of... It doesn't seem like they're a significant company in the sense that they make ice cream, but what they do mm-hmm. in terms of infusing their value and impact that they make and also making yes. really brave and controversial choices sometimes that mm-hmm. may be unpopular, I think yep. is kind of an amazing personification of that brand. I think they're also really in tune with their audience. Because remember like Saturday Night Live used to have this skit with Alec Baldwin like the sweaty ball, like where they make fun of the ladies. And they yes. actually made that ice cream and all these mm-hmm. different things or Jerry Garcia, you know, like all these really different things are really infuse who the founders are and their values and their ice cream essentially is an extension of that personality. Yes. Absolutely. And I love this example because they weren't afraid to really notice what people like and what people respond to and just bring it right into the center of their brand. And no ice cream company or really food company of any kind ever had the thought or the guts to do that. You know, and it's like once they do it, you're like, oh yeah, all the rest of the branding out there in that industry is actually super boring. And you don't notice it till someone stands out. You don't notice all the opportunities that are being missed until somebody stands out. I'm thinking of another example is Patagonia. I don't know a ton about them, but the little bit I know is that they have done some pretty extraordinary things about sourcing materials and like doing a lot of educating of their audiences about how they source materials and why. And just reading a little bit about it suddenly makes you so aware of the supply chains that go into everything we own and what the impact is on the planet and on people. And they actually, I don't remember what it was now, but they did a huge political campaign to save, I can't remember if it was a national park or a river from development, but they they ended up taking out full page ads in the New York Times, doing political action. And it's great for their business, of course, but they also said, okay, because we have this platform, we actually can be a model of a way to do things differently. We can actually make a much bigger change than just what our clothing can provide people. You know, yeah. I thought that was really inspiring. Of course, my clients 
And the folks that you work with don't have to work on that scale. Like it really matters to do that kind of work on a very small scale as well. Right. So I think the question comes back for us who are small business owners. How can we make our brand unique, right? Just what we talk about with the ice cream or Patagonia, those people have big companies and big budget. Yeah. They're very well known. Yeah. You know, we see them every day in the brand. So for us small businesses, how can we make our business unique? Especially there might be many competitors in the market already. What are some of the things yep. we do? So a place you can start is to do a little bit of your own analysis of your market. And it doesn't have to be super data-driven. It doesn't have to rely on skill sets you might not have. But really just spend a bunch of time looking at the websites of other stagers, looking at social media feeds of other stagers, wherever they show up. Step back as much as you can and first ask yourself, what am I seeing? Start with the most obvious thing. Wow, it's really weird. A lot of people are using cool colors in their branding. Okay, write it down. (laughs) Okay, I'm noticing the preponderance of white kind of cultural signaling. Okay, I'm noticing that all the homes look, list your adjectives. (laughs) So like, what are the trends you're seeing? What are the things that you see over and over on people's sites? What's the language that you keep seeing over and over again? Just kind of inventory that, you know, don't stress about it. Just take a a couple of hours over a couple of days and, and do that. And then go back and ask yourself, what am I not seeing? And really think about your own client base and their demographics and their attitudes and say, am I seeing that? Where am I seeing that reflected? Where am I not? And then this can be a good one to have in dialogue with someone, with like a friend in your industry, someone like you. What stories are not being told here? Like all these things seem so surface, but they're really communicating a lot of values. So what's missing? What stories are not being told? And that becomes the little creative key. So what can I do that is going to really intervene in what has become normal in this market? Because when you can kind of intervene and do something really different, you're going to stand out. And if it comes from that kind of process of getting sensitive to what's happening out there, you can intervene not just for its own sake, but to actually do something useful and something relevant to people. In every market, there are people who are not being considered or being spoken to. And, you know, maybe not all of the folks listening to this podcast are going for those markets who are not being spoken to. Some people might be going to markets that are already being spoken to. And those both have different issues to deal with. But really think about, you know, what's my position out there? What do I want to be known for is another really good question. No, I agree with that. I think the challenge is when you're starting out, you really have no idea what that may look like for you because you haven't really done a lot of projects yet. So you don't know exactly what kind of clients you want to work with, like what demographic or what neighborhood even. So if you're new starting out in your business, how can you navigate that and trying to figure out while building your brand in your business? Don't wait to figure it out before you start working. (laughs) Especially when you're first starting out, you're probably going to get some of your first jobs just through a personal contact, through your 
beginning network that you're building and get working. And each time you work on a project, really take note of how it felt and who you worked with and what felt good about it and what didn't feel good about it and what you were able to be successful with and what you struggled with and just really learn from it. You don't have to start answering all these big brand questions right away. And that's a big myth out there that you can't launch your business until you have a brand. And that's pretty backwards, actually. (laughs) In a way, you can start doing a brand anytime you want because you can start making branding moves for free now because you can do it on Canva. or You know, there's all these tools that can help you. So you can start playing around with it, but don't let it get in your way. Like get to work as best you can. I had to work with a lot of different types of people before I really figured out who my people really were that I wanted to keep working with. And I imagine that'll be true for your folks as well. Also, if we really think back, like my parents' generation, there was really no real concept of brand yet. Like my mom was a mm-hmm. dentist. She didn't have a website. Okay. She didn't have a logo. She didn't have a like. Right. She didn't have a sign outside of her office. It was just all yeah. word of mouth, and she was just. Mm-hmm. But at the time, her focus was to raising me and my sister, who were really still young at the time. So she yeah. worked part-time as much as she could but it was very strict you know like once you drop us off in the morning she start working prepare for lunch and then work a little bit more pick us up and then she was done for a day essentially because yeah. we have to go home yeah. so she decided what her business will look like and she mm-hmm. built her business according to that i think you yeah. made a, a good point that our culture now is really letting us to be flexible in our business. We no longer have to yeah. have a business that is very nine to five. We have the choice. Right. If I want to work from 10 mm-hmm. to 10 every day, sure, <laughs> why not, right? But most people probably won't find that as sustainable. But the thing is right. that you have that choice as a business owner on yeah. what you want to name your business or how you want to run mm-hmm. your operation. I mean, before the show started, we're kind of joking about how celebrities' kids have basically all free reign in terms of what their names could be, right? Like Apple, right. Or Pilot Inspector. I mean, these are real yes. kids' names. <laughs> and does that, how much impact does that really make, right? How yeah. important do you think is a name to a business? I think eventually it's really important. Is it more important than all the other aspects of your brand? Not necessarily. I'm thinking about those celebrity baby names and those celebrities named their babies like that because it continues the brand of the celebrity, right? It says we're innovative, we're cutting edge, we're free, whatever the values are that they're trying to put out. So it's it's an identity decision. I mean, I guess all naming of babies is an identity decision for the family. So people ask this question about logos as well. And a brand name or a brand logo acquires meaning over time that people assign to it as they grow that gut feeling about who you are. The name is somewhat important. It's the meaning that eventually becomes ascribed to the name that's really important. Like think about Nike. That's a cool sounding word. And it's got a cool backstory. It's like a a goddess, right? It may have been kind of arbitrary or Apple. You know, these are simple words, simple names. What makes them powerful is all the other decisions that have happened 
that have now given us a feeling that attaches to the name. And I would argue that your mom, by the way we're talking about branding today, without thinking about it that way, she did have a brand because all the people that went to her as a patient and knew her and told each other about her said things about her that made other people go in. So there were values and qualities that she exhibited in ways that she treated people that gave this big community of people a gut feeling about who she was and why you wanted to go to her and not somebody else. So that's not quite an answer to a question about naming. So I'll just follow this aside for a minute. If you're brand new and you're not making all these big brand decisions yet and you're just going out there and getting the work, you're already building your brand. And one of the things that's really important about doing that work is you start getting reflected back to you what people appreciate most about what you do. And that's a really good signal to bring back into your branding because, you know, we need mirrors (laughs) to see ourselves, right? But the name, the logo, again, they kind of acquire meaning over time. So you want to make sure that you pick something that's going to be flexible with your changes, right? So your name can do that. Your name can be flexible with your changes. Simple words that are easy for people to pronounce and that don't have a huge amount of other references attached to them for people so that you can kind of ascribe meaning to them. Those are really great. It's perfectly fine to pick a brand name just because it's a really fun sounding word and you really love how it rolls off the tongue and it somehow just kind of captures the spirit of this thing that you're building. It doesn't have to have deep meaning. (laughs) It can, but it doesn't have to. Yeah, I love that actually. And I was thinking about it too. I think for service-based businesses like ours, most people associate it with the founder because we usually are a one-person business, right? And even as your team grow, because your client relationship, you're probably like the first person they meet inside of your company. Mm-hmm. Because most of the time, owners go out and do lead generation type of work, right? Going networking events, shaking hands, kissing baby, and all this stuff. Yeah. And so most likely, they're going to associate you with your brand. That's right. Yeah, my brand, people love my brand name, the Bureau of Tactical Imagination. It sounds fun. It sounds cool. I don't find myself saying it that much. And most people, when they refer people to my work and to the Visionary Syndicate, say, oh, you need to go work with Amy Walsh. And then they see my brand name and they're like, oh, your brand name's so cool. You know, (laughs) but if I didn't have it, I think it would be okay. You know, if I was still Amy Walsh coaching, I think it would be okay. So in the story of how I started my brand name was I had been in the art world and I'd been in the academic world and I was uncomfortable kind of rebranding myself as a business person. Like it wasn't an identity that was comfortable for me. And because I came from the world of art and theater it felt kind of like I had to perform this new identity for a while while I got comfortable with it. In the Bureau of Tactical Imagination, it sort of sounded like a film noir kind of like, it felt like part of my performance of being a business owner. It was like something I said jokingly to my friends. And then it just kind of stuck. I was like, this just tickles me. 
So I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know, I've been working with people for a while and I was starting to become known for doing quirky things. And there's a lot of business owners out there who really want to be more creative in their work. And so it, it appeals to people. You know, it can be a combination of kind of personal decisions and the kind of market position decisions. It can be simple. It can be complicated. And that's another place to look at how is everyone else approaching naming in your industry? And do you feel aligned with that? Do you want to conform to that? Because sometimes conformity is a good strategic thing to do. Or would it be potentially really powerful to do something really different from that and stand out from that? What are the pros and cons of doing that? Yeah, no, I love that. And actually, I was going to ask you about that because you're really a multi-passionate entrepreneur. And that is something that's becoming more and more common in our industry as well. I think when I first started staging, people were... It was very taught in the very cookie-cutter way. You take a training, you start your own business as a stager, Mm -hmm. and you grow your business from there. And now we're actually seeing people doing many different things in the industry, which I think is exciting. But when Mm -hmm. you're multi-passionate, you're doing multiple things at once, does that make a branding and having a consistent message difficult? So I think there's a couple of issues with multi-passionate, a couple ways to think about it. One is on the level of your business model. If you have several different types of work you do that focus on different audiences and have different results, you're essentially running several small businesses at once. Some people are just built for that. They live for that. And they really need to go through this kind of branding process for each one. And there's always through lines. It's the same person that these things all came from. So there are always through lines. And sometimes it's hard to see them until you kind of stand back and look at the whole thing and say, okay, how are these related? There is something that's important to me. There's something that drives me that is present in each of these things. So that can be something to lean into with each of those three different brands and projects. For most of us, that is a very unwieldy and exhausting way to live our lives. (laughs) For many of us, right? We have kids, we have other responsibilities. And I have found in my own life as a multi-passionate person, focusing just on one thing in my paid business, in the business that I'm actively generating income from, has been really, really helpful. I have just made sure that that one thing allows me to show up really fully. I feel like I get to really be an artist in my business. I get to really be an educator in my business. I get to be a designer in my business. I get to be both an introvert and an extrovert in my business. So I've found something that when I present it to the outside world is one thing. I am helping you build a brilliant brand. And then once I've got people in the room, I really get to operate from these different strengths that I have. And I made the decision for my sculpture and installation work to keep that outside of the parameters of this business, which actually gives me a lot of freedom in those zones. So I think the message there is you do get to have all the things. You don't have to do them all at once. You probably can't do them all at once. And you don't have to do them all in the same place. You get to figure out what each of these parts of you needs and how to kind of build it in. 
because there's a lot to be said for multi-passionate people for letting our form of income be simplified. I love that. Actually, it's almost like a jackal and hide almost. You always feel like I need to appease both, but actually you just need to make that decision of what that looks like for you. I talk about this from time to time. I also do work as a photographer, like a lens-based artist. I also feel uncomfortable with the label of artist because I grew up in a society that really looks down on artists because it's not the money-making career choice. And so I struggle a lot with it as an adult working in that Mm. field. But I keep it very separate from running my school because I do feel like it's a different part of me where the photography work kind of feeds my soul because most of my work revolves Mm. around, you know, personal interests, you know, like things about immigration and race issues and gender Mm. issues as well. And I do that through still life photography and digital collage and all that. And that's very separate. Being an educator or a podcaster or, you know, like running a school. But I, we do see that a lot in real estate, you know, where people are multi-passionate. I think at some point, if you're trying to do too much at once, it can be confusing to the customers. I remember once we took on a client for staging and I went to the house to meet her. She gave me her business card. So on the front, she had her real estate agent business card. Like, you know, the typical headshot, you know, company and all that. And then when I flip it to the back, she does wedding makeup. And I was very confused at that moment because there was like this completely different headshot and this like 80s bride <laughs> makeup and big hair. And, you know, and I was like really confused. That's hilarious. I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> but it was very, I think if I were a customer, I will find that very confusing. And I might not Absolutely. have confidence in my real estate agent if that's the way she presents her business. I think it's totally fine to do both, but probably don't put it all in one place. In the same place. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it would be a lot harder to sell what I do if I said to the world, I am here to help you build your brilliant visionary brand and do this healing work using this healing modality and learn how to do makeup for weddings. It's not like people get confused on the level of like, they don't understand what those things are. But if someone's coming looking to build a brand and they see that, they're thinking, no, I just want someone who specializes in branding because I need to get this right. And if this person's doing all these different things, you lose some kind of trust there. It's interesting, especially with the branding as an example, because someone's looking for a brand that's focused and coherent. (laughs) that's an example of three different audiences that example i just gave you or the business card that's two different audiences she's talking to on the same business card when you pick your audience you talk to them and you talk only to them or they're going to walk on to the next person i think that is very true because it is two different audience right just for wedding makeup is targeting brides and then the other side is targeting sellers and rarely both of the those things exist in the same space, right? Right. So we have to be very aware in terms of who we are talking to. I just think that also today in today's culture, people really want to be listened to because Mm -hmm. I think for the longest time, marketing is very blanketed. It's very salesy. Remember that I keep talking about Alec Bowen today, I don't know why, but like the Alec Bowen (laughs) movie where it's like always be selling, right? Well, 
part of that is true as business owner, we are always selling, but that really hardcore thing where it's like, did you earn your coffee today? Because you didn't sell enough. So no, you don't deserve any right. coffee. Like, look at my Rolex. It's because I'm really good at selling. I think those type of attitude, consumers are really tired of it and they want to feel yeah. they've been heard. That's why I think also like having a strong customer service and a strong mm-hmm. experience that is in a very yeah. positive and in a very productive way. That's really the key in building, I think, long-term client relationship. Absolutely. And that's the key in your very first steps of starting your business as well. Building strong relationships, full of goodwill and generosity, and going from there. So we're coming up to the end of our show. And so before we leave, what would be the number one tip you'll give to our listeners when it comes to building a great brand for their home staging businesses? I think it would go back to really looking at your market and imagining yourself as a culture changer in that market. You know, and that could feel very political to you, or it could just feel like this is a culture where everything feels a certain way. And I have my own really unique vision as an artist or way of being, and I'm going to take the risk to show it, to really show it. You don't have to do that in a way that is separate from your market and your audience. You always want to be thinking about them. You have a lot of creative entrepreneurs. Stagers are creative entrepreneurs, right? So challenge the places where you want to conform instead of really showing your creative vision. Try that piece about analyzing and looking at your market and thinking about how you conform to it and how you don't conform to it. Yeah. And I also think that can show up in, you know, many different ways. It could be business practice. It could be the language you use. It could be mm-hmm. also the way you visually express your staging. Exactly. How are you yeah. incorporating the patterns, textures, and also sourcing as well? That can all be part mm-hmm. of the decision-making process. Exactly. And I think that the last thing I would say about that is, Branding, like everything else, it's a creative process. As you're thinking about how to show up in your market, seeing what's already being done, considering what you could do differently that really shows what is unique and special about you, just keep asking the question, what if? And ask yourself ridiculous questions. What if all my marketing was like a comedy show about domestic life, you know? What if I marketed myself like it was a dramatic movie? Give yourself outrageous questions. Like, what if I made everything feel like Fight Club? I don't know. What if I... (laughs) Just ask the questions no one's asking and just see what comes up. Like, don't be afraid of bad ideas. Yeah. It's always when you start generating the most ridiculous bad ideas. I have this exercise I do with people where I have them develop the worst taglines they could think of for their business. Like write out your 10 worst taglines you could think of. And inevitably, somewhere in that 10, there's a tagline that's actually really good. Because you're saying the thing you feel like you're not supposed to say. And sometimes that's genius. I think so. Especially I think with what we do creatively, you can have a little bit of fun with your branding. Mm -hmm. And I think one person comes to mind in the interior space is Jonathan Adler. His line of furnishing and accessories are 
also very kitschy. It's very colorful. And mm. he definitely plays that very tongue-in-cheek kind of thing. It's show mm-hmm. up over and over again, not only in the branding of the brand, but also their product as well. And, you know, not everything needs to look like Joanna Gaines, you know, kind of thing. It, it just depends. Also your audience, right? Because if your audience, if your target market is a bit younger, they have higher tolerance. But obviously, right. if you work in the luxury space, they're going to have less tolerance on the cheekiness of it, unless it's done very, right. very well. It just depends on where your brand positioning or where your brand personality is and how comfortable mm-hmm. your target market is going to be acceptable to that. That's right. Yeah, I think if you're in that luxury space, you're just going to really want to show your experience and your expertise and what sets you apart from all the folks who are just like, picking up home staging for the first time and maybe don't have either the sort of creative background or the professional background. I have a branding, something that operates like a little branding joke to close out our time together on that topic of bad taglines. This is one of my favorite branding moves ever. There's a little bookstore in Montague, Massachusetts. I don't know if you're familiar with Massachusetts, but it's a rural town in Massachusetts. It's a little bookstore that's sort of in a rickety building next to a river. And their tagline is books you don't need in a place you can't find. (laughs) And it is like a cult favorite. People come from all over New England to go to the Montague Book Mill to get books you don't need in a place you can't find. So that's that's such a good example of doing the unexpected and becoming wildly popular because of it. (laughs) I love it. So thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a great conversation about branding and also business value and everything in between. It was really fun to talk to you and learn more about your business and your industry. Thanks so much. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging. Happy staging.